the Republican Party, my party, has permanently changed. It's not ever really going to go back to, even if I would like it to, right? It's never going to go back to the days of Mitt Romney or George H.W. Bush. That isn't in the cards. I think we are headed to a more populist politics and one that actually can appeal to maybe a broader and more diverse segment of the electorate. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Patrick Ruffini, a Republican political consultant who runs a polling and public opinion research firm called Echelon Insights. He has a very well-received book out now with a provocative title, Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition, Remaking the GOP. Despite my allergy to the notion of casting anything about the current Republican Party in a positive light, given its capitulation to the Trumpists, I do have respect for Patrick and his work, and we had a good conversation about these matters. And even small changes to the coalition supporting the parties right now is crucial in our closely divided country. I'll hope you'll find the conversation with Patrick worth your listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Patrick Ruffini of Echelon Insights. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y dot com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. I saw your book. I thought we should talk about it. It was back, I think in 2018 that I sat in on your class and interviewed you there, right? I want to say, yeah, it was 2018. I think, yeah. So... The first thing I want to ask you about is, obviously, you're an entrepreneur. You have a enterprise called Echelon Insights. Since 2018, since we last caught up, how's business going? You know, business is going really well, actually. I don't know if that's attributable to the political environment. The first big reckoning for our line of work was post-2016 and the perennial question that really was resurfaced, can we really trust the polls? And I find that any time there is that kind of moment of uncertainty in our industry, kind of business goes well, business jumps. And uh, the second, the, really the second moment of uncertainty was around COVID and when COVID first hit. And that turned out to be an inflection point. We thought some forms of research were going to completely go away, but the ability to do focus groups virtually actually like spurred more interest, right, in a firm that was sort of a little bit less traditional to start out with about its methods. We're really pleased with how things have gone the last few years. Have you grown? You have more employees, more clients? 
Yeah, no, it's been more employees, more clients all the way around continuing to hire. And you talk to a lot of political entrepreneurs. I think that we have a healthy enough mix of campaign and non-campaign clients. The majority of our work is non-campaign, corporate association, foundation, that type of thing. We have the luxury of being able to continuously grow and not have to lay off people and not have that unpleasant task at the end of an election cycle of right-sizing our firm for the odd year. The ability to nurture folks and build those long-term, allow people to build kind of long-term careers it has been something that, uh, I, I don't know if we're unique or distinct in that, but um, it's really gratifying to see. You have characterized yourself as a pollster. You've characterized yourself as a research organization. What do you do for the different types of clients? The majority of our work is in the public opinion research space, a good portion also in bringing in data analytics. So the kind of data analytics you would see on the left, you know, a, a group like Catalyst or Target Smart doing without maybe the voter file vendor uh, part of that equation. When we first started out, we really saw there was really too many silos, right, in this industry and bring all the data and information, either a campaign or an advocacy organization or somebody looking to engage constructively in the political process would need under one roof. About a third of our business is purely digital research. So really tapping into various data streams out there, social media data, even with the changes to all the APIs and the fragmentation, especially with the fragmentation of the social media space, that is proving more and more important to people to really keep an eye on because it's not really that <laughs> obvious that there's no no longer one single place to go to get a finger on the pulse of the conversation. Who are some of your name clients in the campaign space, in the corporate space and so on? We have done work across the spectrum. So you've got trade associations, uh, some bigger names in the Everyone from the Gates Foundation and the foundation world just released a big piece of research with the Walton Family Foundation to trade groups. Chamber of Commerce is one. Business Roundtable would be another one. In the campaign space, we've mostly been on the, let's say, outside group side of the equation, right, which we enjoy a lot. And um, particularly whenever we have the opportunity, I think, to do work in uh, particular states to shape issues, to shape ballot initiative, doing ballot initiative campaigns where it's not a strictly R versus D battle. And you actually have the opportunity to persuade with some unique messages that are not necessarily the obvious messages that everybody thinks about at the very outset of a campaign. You, if I remember correctly, and I think I read it again in your book, were kind of in the never Trump category in the run up to 2016 and didn't watch the Trump administration with an entirely favorable outlook for a longtime Republican. But where do you put yourself now with respect to the Republican Party and to Trump? Look, I continue to remain a skeptic. We've done work for entities and groups and people who are maybe more skeptical. We would not want to see a third Trump nomination. I do think that we certainly have a very interesting primary season ahead of us. A hill to climb, for sure, but uh, a very interesting primary season ahead. The process for me, after 2016, I wrote this book 
really starting in the 2020 election, but had been thinking about it um, for a long time. And it was really a, a, a process of coming to terms with the fact that, okay, in 2016, I was among the people within the Republican Party, and I was not certainly alone in that, who were more skeptical of Donald Trump, who opposed him in the primary, who did not support him in the general election. And then he wins, right? He wins a surprising, unexpected victory with working class voters and does better to some, to some degree also. And this is 2016 with Hispanic voters, African-American voters seems to put, be putting together this really interesting coalition that was in many ways completely divorced from the world of, let's say, a Beltway political operative. And so just from the standpoint of wanting to better understand what had gotten wrong in 2016, not necessarily in the, the principles I stood up for and advocated during that campaign, but what I got wrong and maybe my assessment of what the appeal of a candidate like Donald Trump was. My position today would be that the Republican Party, my party, has permanently changed. It's not ever really going to go back to, even if I would like it to, right? It's never going to go back to the days of Mitt Romney or George H.W. Bush. That isn't in the cards. I think we are headed to a more populist politics and one that actually can appeal to uh, maybe a broader and more diverse segment of the electorate. But I you know, got it wrong in 2016 in terms of what I thought that ability was then um, to appeal uh, to that segment of the electorate. With that said, look, I would strongly prefer right, that that is not Donald Trump moving forward. We will see what happens in the primaries. I think certainly someone else, I, I do think Ron DeSantis or even on Nikki Haley, could carry big parts of that coalition forward, could kind of reap the structural benefits of Trump's realignment without necessarily the chaos and the bad tweets and, and whatnot. But, you know, it really, this book was really kind of a, a process of coming to terms with the changes in my party. When you kind of wave Trump off as chaos and bad tweets, it feels like it comes short of the peril that our country is in because of him, which is, we both know, he can't tell the truth. He denied the election result and instigated the action on January 6th and really did not want to walk away from the office, which is kind of the basic characteristic you need in a president that you've had since George Washington was willing to do that, who probably could have stayed forever, right? And who is promising now to do some pretty scary things if he gets back into power. So what troubled me from the outset, reading your book, I mean, I know and respect you, but I have this problem with any Republican political operative right now that you're attached and almost in this book celebrating the kind of coalitional success of a party that is very corruptly taken with a wannabe authoritarian. I don't know how to say it, you know, totally gently beyond that, but like that must inform some of your daily thinking about this. Look, what I strongly prefer, right, that Trump is not the Republican nominee for sure. You know, I said very clearly on January 6th 
I said Trump should have been impeached right after that. But these people, leaders in the party, declined to do what was seemed pretty obvious defense of the republic. Regardless of left-right political positions, this is like a outside of the norm behavior. We wouldn't have the problem of him most likely winning the nomination. We, he would have been no longer qualified. The question I go back to is Trump did all of these things, and yet he's leading in the polls. Now, that's not a commentary on, well, he's right. It's not really a commentary on his right. As you know, from the world of political campaigns, plenty of things happen that aren't right or not necessarily the things that... And the Nazi party got the most votes in the early 30s, right? I mean, that's the kind of situation from my viewpoint. I mean, at this point, we are, we are at a moment in time where... You know, we'll see what happens a year from now, but you have somebody who has been indicted 91 times. He did January 6th. He did all of these things and advanced a stolen election narrative, right, that had terrible consequences. I don't deny that. And yet he's winning over kind of, kind of uh, uh, not necessarily just that, uh, you know, I mean, I think that the the idea, I think initially, right, he's activating these, these kind of ugly, ugly sentiments in the electorate, this racially resentful, traditional minded voter, that MAGA base. But the saving grace of all of that was he was supposed to be unelectable with everyone else, right? He was supposed to be toxic to large segments of Hispanics, African Americans. He was offending people left and right, women voters. The staying power of this is something. That's not a defense of anybody. Is, is That's that. not a defense. What is it about the alternative to him, both in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party, that is unable to effectively put him away? What is it about that? And what do we need to you know, reevaluate as a result of that? It seems to me part of that is the lack of leadership among Republican elites in saying things like you're saying, saying he's in front. So I'm going to steer clear of our Chris Christie or someone who had, you know, very little to lose. He stayed afloat in a lot of ways because people have run scared from him individually rather than standing up to him collectively in your party. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, what does the world look like where you Republicans do take that vote right in February 2021? I bet you that both you and I would feel enormously better about the world if the if the Republican fight was between Haley and DeSantis and a few other people like I don't I, you know, those, they wouldn't be my pick. I'd pick her over him all day long. But I could worry about policy changes instead of about the system of government going under and a guy buddying up to dictators around the world and lying his ass off. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, you know, I, 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 I just wonder about and am pessimistic about oftentimes the ability to, and I think we've heard this message ever since he, basically ever since he came into office, right? He is undermining democratic norms, right? I mean, we've heard that quite a bit. The problem is as a message, it doesn't seem to, be connecting with a wide swath of voters, whether or not it's the right. I agree with that because a very few, a very small proportion of our electorate 
understands the constitution, understands the norms, understands why they're important. And it's people like you and me who have to stand up for them or they will be swamped under apparently. So I think two things. Number one is if you're looking to build a political coalition against somebody, you know, you have to lead with the right message that has the most appeal. Now in 2022, Democrats had some success with that. What I think it manifested as that in a way that was not may not be transferable to 2024, what it manifested as was Trump's minions, the sort of less charismatic chaos agents, right, in some of these House races who were brought under in what should have been a Republican wave and prevented a large House Republican majority because voters didn't like it was less of a message of we need to uphold these norms uh, of government. It was less of that than these people seem a little bit crazy. They seem a little bit chaotic. And crazy candidates have have for many years had trouble. You know, when they say they something about a witch, they don't do that well in Delaware. Exactly. Right. So and so I think that 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 element of it. But Trump himself I think evades that pretty effectively. I mean, he lost the popular vote both times, right? So like celebrating too much his political acumen seems a little bit faulty. Yeah, I mean, I think that the way I would put it is that he had a moment in 2016 where he obviously shocked the world. He brought about a coalitional shift that Republicans had been really yearning after for a while. I mean, I don't think there were Republicans yearning after a anti-free trade, anti-immigration switch in the election. I don't think there were Republican politicians yearning after that. There may have been Republican-based voters who were yearning after that, right? And, And were not well served by the politicians. And by the way, look, that position is one that was traditionally one of the labor left. Right. It was something that was more closely associated with the Bernie Sanders. And do you think that his success can really be attributed to his? I mean, I do to some extent to his position taking. Or do you think it was he's a pretty good showman? He's a pretty good stand up comic. He's pretty good at hitting the opposition in a way that gets attention. He's pretty way good at getting free media, uh, earned media. Those are things that are definitely in his skill set. I think that's the majority of it. But he had a set of positions that aligned with that, that came together in a package, right? And that's really, I I think that to the extent that issues do matter in campaigns, I think they matter to the extent that they dovetail with a candidate's biography and persona and what they advocate for. Otherwise, I just don't think they're heard very well. But I think that, you know, generally his his positioning of I am going to attack the sacred cows, smash the establishment, tell the broader truth. He lies about he's not factually correct on a lot of things and lies a lot about a lot of individual issues. But for his voters, he was telling larger truths about the corruption that they were seeing and experiencing the system, that's something that politicians on both sides, really for valid reasons, right, don't talk about things that way. They don't talk about the system that they're part of being corrupt. But that is very much the language of the ordinary voter. I haven't hardly ever seen a politician not run against Washington. 
it's Washington, but I think this was something more than that in, in terms of saying, we just want to smash the system. We don't just want to put new people in charge of it. I mean, it was a, you know, I think it was a change, a, certainly a different, different kind of emphasis. I do want to go back to your point about what is, what is his political acumen, actually? He has this moment in 2016. I'm not sure that in the end, another Republican could win the 2016 election. I think that, you know, the way he reorganized the electorate, created this electorally efficient coalition in the upper Midwest, maybe that's something he only he could do. I'm open to that argument, even though I was a proponent of other candidates. But I, I definitely think that an, if another Republican had managed to get elected in 2016, I think they definitely get reelected in 2020. I mean, just remember, Trump politically squandered a really strong economy. Another Republican doesn't generate quite as much fervent opposition. Another Republican probably has a more steady response to the pandemic and reaps the benefit of that in the economy, right? Your viewpoint is so much about like, is this, is this candidate able to win? Honestly, it's not all party, even though I'm a partisan as you are, it's not all party. It's about like, is this person a good representative for leadership? Is this person a threat to the Republic? How can we, without like thinking normatively at all about this guy, the setup right now isn't a good one for you or for me or for the electorate because it's leading to the success of candidates that don't have the country's best interests at heart. We both agree. Look, we would be better off without Trump as the Republican nominee. I feel this acutely, right? I mean, just in terms of, I would be doing a lot more candidate work, quite honestly. I would think you would, and, and you could be more proud of that. I think there are people still there who I believe in their policies. Like even the, the best people have absolutely had to go over to the Trump side or else they're just not going to win. They're, they're not going to have it even have a shot. A good stand-up comedian tests their material and refines it iteratively. And I think that Trump does something like that in his rallies, in his tweeting. And so he does have a way of sort of poll testing or message testing, or at least information comes to him out of the loony space that he takes advantage of, right? That seems right. That seems right. But also, I think to some extent he's captive to it. And what I'm kind of getting at is that, you know, one good thing Trump did in office, I hope we can agree on this. He gave, you know, he at least did not get out in the way of the vaccine. His administration. Oh, he was for it at the beginning. Produced the vaccine. That's true. He was for it. I agree. Right. So when it came time to sell the vaccine to Republican voters, you would think that, okay, Trump going out there and actively promoting and selling the vaccine to his constituents would actually lead to his constituents getting vaccinated. But that didn't happen. And he backed away from it, too. He was getting booed. He backed away from it. And DeSantis backed away from it. So he's not in charge. I mean, that's the thing. He's not in charge of these people. It's a feedback loop. It is not just Trump. It's not just DeSantis. It's not all of these politicians who have inhabited the fringe or pushed the fringe in their direction. It's that there are people there as well, right? They are in some kind of 
relationship with each other. That's not exactly the angle you come at the study of the electorate, right? But that's what's going on in this country is that the right wing of the Republican Party is marching further and further and further away from reality. I take your point there, right? I take your point. The question is, I think that this country is uh, extremely divided right now. We just saw a protest outside the DNC coming from the extreme left. Is this the pro-Palestinian? I don't know if that's the extreme left. I think that's a broad number of particularly young people who don't like seeing another right-wing government in Israel going disproportionately in their response. You had a Capitol Police response to this. You had elected officials inside. I think people will make the comparison, right? No one's trying to stop the counting of votes in a presidential election by protesting a policy question that has advocates on both sides who believe in their causes and are in good faith. Um, But I do think that the sanctioning of political violence, right? I mean, it's something that's unacceptable. I agree with you. I don't hear anyone on the left sanctioning political violence. I hear that on the right a lot. I think that there's a difference right now between the two parties. Just take the House. In the House, the Democrats are almost completely unified on almost every subject and also being pragmatic generally. This is like a switcheroo or something, isn't it? Like from years before. And the Republican Party has had eight people depose their speaker and picked a a guy who, who, if you look at what he believes, is so fringe as to be impossible to contemplate in a leadership role like that. Look, like he is bringing back, and he does exactly the same thing Kevin McCarthy did. Yes, I mean, you have people who are take positions right from the safety of the back bench and then get power and have to act in, you know, in, you know, in a responsible way. I mean, and and look, I hope he does. Trump, too, in a sense. I mean, not not on not on the election stuff. I mean, certain things right on certain things. He was absolutely a a true believer in what he was doing and wouldn't listen to anyone else. But when you talk about, you know, what his response to the pandemic was, at least, you know, it was very erratic from a messaging standpoint, but from a policy perspective, he did much the same, you know, you squint and it's kind of what a Democratic president would have done in terms of passing the spending, the CARES Act, all of those things. A Democrat would have been a little lighter on the ivermectin and the cleansing of sunlight and just like the attacking of the scientific establishment and all of that stuff. All of the stuff he did was bad. It's fascinating. He did that stuff at the same time as Creating the vaccine or, you know, creating personal. But he didn't do that stuff. Like, that's the stuff that was already in process by responsible people. He was happy to piggyback on what responsible people were doing and claim success, you know, in a programmatic One of the things about him is that when he receives enough pushback in a particular area, like when he came out with the Muslim ban and the court said no. So he went backwards a step or two, or his lawyers did, and they try it again. He does have that characteristic, even in his business. If someone challenged him enough, he would back down. I mean, I wonder if that a set that changes your assessment of the danger, right? That he uniquely poses, right? In the sense of he was able 
to push the election thing far enough, right, where you had January 6th happen. And yet, ultimately, he was shut down a lot of times. Now, you know, we don't want to test that. No, but Patrick, a lot of the people that shut him down, whether they were in his administration, whether they were in Congress, whether they were in the courts, whether they were election administrators, are now gone. And he has learned a lot about appointing only loyalists. I mean, he's so far ahead of where he was in 2016 when he didn't think he was going to win. He didn't think he deserved to win. You know, he was shocked and scared when he actually won the race. And then he appointed a, a lot of people that he didn't know, including people who were breaks on his ignorance and his poor judgment. I don't think he's going to pick you to be in his kitchen cabinet advising him about what makes sense or not. I don't think he's going to be picking again from well thought of generals or captains of industry. He's going to pick my pillow type executives. I think there's a threat. I, I think that uh, it's clear that they have, you know, in terms of the policy making apparatus at the agencies, right? I think that you're going to absolutely have a different kind of person. Now we have in our system of government, we have checks and balances. We have a court system. We have the military certainly is, you know, an institution. But they're going to work on on making it less independent. They're going to work on undoing all the civil service reforms that came hard fought when we used to have just patronage throughout the ranks. He's going to try to put political appointees way further down. But also you just have to look at the, look, the judicial process. I think if you look at what happened, you know, between the 2020 election and the time Trump left office, right? He was zero for 40 in all those 40 court, 40 court cases, including judges that he personally had appointed. Even they knew, right, that you could not take this that far. I mean, he has three Supreme Court justices, certainly. And you'd only need to look at Dobbs, right, to see how profoundly that has reshaped the court. Not only, they didn't go along with this independent state legislature theory that everyone's talking about as, oh, now all the guardrails are off, right? So I, I do think that the judiciary is going to be very tough for, at some level, you can't do illegal things. Look, he's an old man. He is probably not as goal focused as a lot of the people working for him. But if you look at other countries that go down the road to authoritarianism, they don't go quickly necessarily. It takes multiple iterations of messing up institutions over time. He would love to do that. Is he going to get there all the way? Hopefully not. Just because he wants to maintain power and pass it on to his children doesn't mean he will successfully do that. I don't want anywhere near the nomination again of a major party, somebody who that's what they want and they're willing to break the rules to do it. But I think you would have to look at, are the people who get elected and who have to run every two years? I think if we were to actually go down that path, I think there would be absolutely be electoral consequences. You mean like there would be electoral, consequences. electoral consequences? And we saw that in, in 2022 to some extent. Because of January 6th. Yeah. It seemed like, I mean, I agree that there probably were some in certain races. That seemed, it seemed like pretty slim consequences for a pretty significant attempt to stay in power illegally. You absolutely do see a base that is locked in 
for both political parties, no matter what. And I think, yeah, if it were 1984, you'd see a landslide, right? But you don't see that anymore. I've probably hijacked the conversation a little bit too much away from your excellent book and what you are saying about the electorate. I think you are putting your finger on the fact that there are kind of realigning changes going on in the electorate, even though when you ask a political scientist about realignment and they'll say, very hard to actually pin down in the way that we used to think about uh, big swaths of the electorate moving smoothly from one place to another. When you ever you dial into particular people in one precinct, they're not following the rules somehow, but in aggregate, you see stuff. Just lay out for the interested listener, what your thesis is and how you support it. Yeah, so this is not the emerging Republican majority 2.0. It is not uh, proclaiming, you know, I think a lot of realignment theory is is really focused on, is there a period of time where the entire country really shifts into one political camp or a certain political mood becomes dominant, whether it was the New Deal uh, coalition, whether it was, uh, you know, some people said, you know, the Reagan era represented the undoing of the New Deal coalition. And a lot of people proclaim this around Barack Obama's election, right, that there would be this kind of durable Democratic majority. And that has proven elusive because of the shifts among individual voting blocks. So you win one group of voters and you typically kind of push away another group of voters simultaneously. And I think those prove to be the more durable shifts. Who is in the parties and the character of the political parties is really the enduring shift and not the realignment. The realignment theory that we know about, which is one party dominance and one party control for a long period of time, we don't really see that anymore. That's very plainly not the moment that we are in. So what moment are we in? I think we are in a moment in which Democrats, I think, have lost a good deal of their identity as primarily this party of the blue collar worker, the so-called party of the people. And Republicans, too, in terms of who's voting for them, are no longer really the party of the country club and the party of big business. If they were, I think you'd see more institutionalists. You would not see a Trump-style politics. And so I go through, what does that mean? And is that likely to continue? That's also a, a kind of politics, right, that we've seen around the world. So it's not something that is either specific to Donald Trump or specific to the United States. You kind of have seen this long-term realignment of working uh, class people, uh, blue-collar people, people who need an American context and education-based realignment as opposed to just purely an income-driven realignment. But you see more and more of those people around the world voting for parties of the right. And you see more and more people who are sort of in the upper income, upper education strata, but primarily in the upper education strata, voting more for parties of the left. And that's really been a pretty durable trend that has only continued right over and that's been happening for about 50 to 60 years ever since the 1960s you do see all over europe etc economic dislocation concern about immigrants who are changing the the nature of the country making it typically browner um, or having different religions and culture seems to create a backlash seems to feed right-wing parties in a lot of these places and seems to have done that here. Do you think that what has driven that change is that same dynamic 
here or has it been from the top down? How do you view that, the, like the source of that in the United States? So I think that Europe was far out ahead of us in terms of this realignment. And I think, you know, if I was sitting here in 2014, 2015, I, I was kind of wondering, why don't we have a Le Pen in the United States? Why don't we have this kind of politics? And I, I didn't know how near or how close that was. I mean, maybe Patrick Buchanan and George Wallace were our Le Pens. Right, exactly. But they always failed, right? They always fell short. Because we have a two-party system and there's no room for a third party right. with a 20%. Yeah, 30, yeah. but it was, a, it was always a tw- that 20, 30%. It's kind of like the AFD in Germany right now. I mean, you know, and I think Germany is a very unique in terms of a bulwark because of their unique history, right? But even there, you see the rise of a far-right party. But in France, for example, uh, I mean, there is no traditional right really to speak of anymore. I mean, there are maybe 10% of, the, of the, the people on the right belong in the Gaullist uh, tradition, right, anymore. Uh, in the UK, there was a, a move to populism with Brexit, and certainly that dominated, I think, the Conservative Party, which is the closest analog I think we have, right, in the United States to the Republican Party in terms of it being sort of a, a closure to a two-party system. And, you know, what you see now is kind of a reversion back to that old school type of Tory party with not great electoral results. They don't seem to be in great shape no matter what direction they go. I think the paradox, right, why didn't we have Trump earlier? Because I think if you look at Western Europe, certainly the, this populist displacement of not just the parties, I mean, it's, 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 it's parties of the center left are really suffering and parties of the center right too. But it's also really just decimated, I think, parties, the sort of the mainstream center left working class parties, because all the energy is on this, let's say, further left or parties that are more focused on cultural issues as opposed to economic ones. I wonder how you see the many third party candidates that have potentially substantial following in 2024, how you see them fitting with your theory of the electorate and the way that it's been changed by the Trump phenomenon. Kevin Phillips had a line for this in the emerging Republican majority. And we talked about the Wallace voter being voters in motion between two political parties and not necessarily a new, a permanent entrant into uh, the presidential arena. And I think that's usually the case with third parties that they actually do provide something of a safety valve. And the two major parties become too dysfunctional to produce candidates who are broadly acceptable to a large number of people. And I think that's what you're seeing now. There's dissatisfaction. You have institutions challenged by one candidate who's under multiple indictments. But you also have, with Joe Biden, a lot of dissatisfaction with him as somebody who people do clearly believe he is too old. And that's a, not just, it's not just an ageism thing. He's not a vigorous speaker, uh, but he he lacks the vitality to. If you talk to people who work with him, you hear that his brain is functioning fine, that he's making decisions, that he's leading that administration. The fundamentals don't seem to mitigate against him. Like the inflation's come down, the economy's relatively booming, he's passed a lot of legislation that for some reason people don't know about but has been advantageous sometimes precisely to the people that are contested, right? 
I don't really understand that. Do you understand that? Why, why it's not, why he, why he's in so much trouble given, or he p- appears to be in recent polls given like basically sane performance following crazy land. I think people are making a judgment about his perceived performance on the economy and whether or not that's something that you would agree with, right? I mean, it's very clearly people are pretty angry and pissed off, really still with inflation, even though it has come down, but, you know, kind of prices being 20, 25%. I think it's the, just the the uncertainty people feel, right? That what are prices going to be next month? I mean, I think that when you have sort of a very, you know, steady one to 2% inflation a year, people don't really think very much don't have to go through the mental exercise. And I think that of of thinking about, and just as, you know, people are very, very hyper reactive to the price of gas and and now the price of groceries. You know, I don't think it's ever a winning position to say, go around to voters and say, well, your perception of this is wrong. I agree that that doesn't seem like that would move anybody. However, like it would seem to be a reasonable thing to bring to people's attention, actual facts even though that might not be like a tested way of either convincing somebody, but it it ought to be like, if that's the truth. I think there was a story this week about, you know, progressive polling, you know, it was data for progress. When we present people with, here's the actual Biden record, they backlash, right? But I think that the point- They backlash, meaning they don't like, they like him less. I mean, they don't buy it. They don't seem to buy it, right? And, you know, even when you're poll testing, uh, exactly what you're saying. We don't know exactly why that's happening, but uh, that seems to be the reality right now. But the reality with third party candidates, right, is that there does seem to be a bigger lane for third party defection from Biden right now than there is from Trump. And no matter what the configuration of candidates or third party candidates we test, it always takes more from Biden. Even if you have a candidate like RFK who appeals to the Trumpist right with his message on vaccines, right? But it's not like a Trumpist right voter is going to defect to RFK over that issue because they like Trump just fine. So what you're left with is a bunch of lower engagement Democratic voters who are dissatisfied or uninspired by Joe Biden for whatever reason, who are maybe parking their support on a third party candidate. I certainly think there's just a lot of dissatisfaction. You know, when you have 70% of the American people in polls say he should really pass the torch onto someone else, to another Democrat who can probably do just as good of a job of advocating for these policies, and if not a better job of advocating for these policies, right? So I, I think that that's really what the third party number is a reflection of right now. When you run a a polling company and a research company, and you put out a serious, useful, informative book like this, what does that do for your business? And what does that do for your reputation? And what's the response been? Well, I I don't know yet. Uh, I don't know yet from my perspective. My partner has also published a book. It's called The Selfie Vote, which talks about yeah. Kristen, and she has published uh, that was a while ago, and I think that only did good things, but, uh, you know, really kind of a little bit more of a warning to Republicans about the young voters, which I think remains still very, very relevant even now, even though they look to be trending against Biden, against Democrats right now. But um, I don't think by any means that's assured uh, that will that will end up there. I noticed in your that in the acknowledgments that you mentioned some of the people you talked to about the book. They ranged from people on the left and the right, 
political analysts who have looked at this in lots of different ways and are really up on it. How much did they influence you along the way or reinforce your thinking? You do have a number of people who are on the left or center left who I think are very clear eyed about the challenges. I think uh, for those of us who try to be serious observers about of politics, um, I think we have to be clear eyed about the challenges facing even our own parties. I've tried to be that over the years about the challenge posed by Donald Trump also being realistic about sort of the potential for something different in the near term. I don't know whether we'll see that. I hope we do, but I don't know whether we'll see that. I've always appreciated people whose loyalty is to something beyond a political party. If there were an accurate analysis party, I would vote for it in every election. I look at groups like the Catalyst. Yeah, we don't always agree with their conclusions, but the work that they put out every election cycle on the coalitions is absolutely fantastic. I rely on it more than I would the exit poll, right? They put out a report every two years about the, here's exactly how many people from different groups were part of the electorate and here's how they voted. I think that's really the best thing out there. So I really strongly rely on, on their analysis as well as also folks on the right that I respect. When I think about Things in history that seemed unlikely and then happened, like the Soviet Union fell when we probably thought, you know, when we were in the Cold War, we couldn't see an end to it. Or there's a dictator like Ceausescu. Everybody's for him until three people are against him and then suddenly everybody's against him. Is there a possibility that even though people right now are polling pro-Trump, in your party. Is there a moment where like everyone sees he has no clothing and, and like 90% of the people fall away? I wish I could say there were, right. I wish I could say definitively that there would be. Oh, what I think you, the closest thing you saw to that was after the midterms, that there was a brief moment of clarity within the Republican party where he was trailing in the polls and at least in head to head polls against DeSantis at the time where he seemed to have cost Republicans seats in the midterms. And there was kind of, I would say, a moment of lucidity and clarity around that, that I feel quickly dissipated in the same way that there was probably maybe a moment of clarity among some elected officials on January 6th that quickly dissipated after that moment. I mean, maybe that's an indication that the volcano bubbles underneath just yeah. waiting to erupt. So so what's interesting is I polled Republican primary voters on this question. I mean, we polled now, you know, we have four, a pretty continuous four to five year data set on where different types of Republicans are. And what's always interesting is that you have basically three divisions within the Republican Party. You have very conservative Republicans, you have somewhat conservative Republicans, and then you've got this rump of moderate to liberal Republicans. And what you always see Every time something happens, uh, whether it was January 6th or whether it was the midterms, you see those moderate to liberal Republicans really drop off a cliff, right? I mean, they're practically 50-50 on Trump favorability. And then slowly, slowly, but surely it ticks up. And it, that might be the elite, but I also just think that elites don't matter as much. Also, there's also a, a truth to me that elites don't have as much power as we think they do. They're less trusted than they've ever been. And so, you know, even if you had that brief moment where every half Republic, half of the Republican senators speak out against Trump after the Access Hollywood tape, that doesn't really sway people. 
very much. So I wish I could say there were, but I think you're right that there is under the right conditions. I think if it's going to happen anywhere, I would say watch New Hampshire and watch specifically if there is a movement of independent voters into the Republican primary in New Hampshire. I was up in New Hampshire in 2000 for George W. Bush. That was not a pleasant experience. So what happened there was the night before there was sort of a a thought that, oh, okay, it's going to be a close race. The last tracking poll had John McCain up by one. He wins by 19 because all the independents flood into the Republican primary on that day. So with no real Democratic primary, it is not a sanctioned contest. Maybe Dean Phillips will catch fire. But without a Democratic primary, you know, there could be that potential. But then how do you carry that forward? That could puncture him. That could wound him. What is the path forward after that? I actually think that there's more of a likelihood of that that specific New Hampshire scenario happening that people are giving credit for right now. I think so, too, even though like there's we've gotten used to him being dominant. If you watch Haley climbing there and you watch the fact that she seems to be on the verge of rounding up really big funding, that's the moment where then if you had money, then maybe you could make a race of it, even though right now it doesn't look like it. We're waiting for that two-person. We're still waiting for that two-person race to materialize. DeSantis would probably have to drop out or really, really get squashed down. Right now we're talking, I mean, everyone's talking about candidates who are two or 3% dropping out and people are like, well, Asa Hutchinson needs to drop out. Well, okay, all five Asa Hutchinson voters can go. Chris Christie's at like 15 in New Hampshire. I think that is the, that's the real challenge right now is Chris Christie, right? I mean, I think that, you know, particularly in New Hampshire where he is locking down about 15% of the vote and that would absolutely go to a non-Trump. I mean, none of those people are voting for Trump. Right. He's been pretty clear about where he is. You know, I think he's been a disappointment in a sense because he was supposed to be this political assassin, but I don't think he's been particularly more compelling on the debate. For me, he's enjoyable to watch take his swings, but, you know, to the extent that you can give him credibility after where he's been through his career. And he isn't afraid to play bully also. He's the only one who really is doing that on your side. I do think that Nikki Haley has shown some fight, and I don't think she comes at it from the same way. Only Christie will say certain things against Donald Trump, but it's not a sustainable. It's not the inherit him if he melts down positioning that that probably is needed. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I much appreciate your time. Is there something I should have asked you that you would love to answer? I know. I don't, I don't want to get any more, any more trouble. <laughs> Who do you think you'd be in trouble with? <laughs> All of your listeners. They don't buy your services. You don't have to worry about them. (laughs) Anyway, great to see you again. That was Patrick Ruffini. Patrick is at echeloninsights.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.